I'm Ajay Parthasarthi and you are listening to The Sensations, a podcast about people who have led impactful lives. On every episode, I'll be engaging in conversations with people who belong to a wide array of fields and I'll bring to you their stories that will inspire the sensation within you. Today on The Sensations, I have with me someone whom the entire cricketing fraternity admires and looks up to. He is a five-time ICC umpire of the year and also was part of the ICC's elite panel of umpires until he retired in 2012. He's an embodiment of integrity in class and is like a computer monitoring the cricket ground with remarkable accuracy. Please welcome Mr. Simon Toffel. Hey Simon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be with you and um, a pleasure to share some knowledge and experience with you, AJ. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show, Simon. But uh, let me tell you this, you are an incredibly lucky man. Ask me why. (laughs) Why do you think I'm a lucky man? Because you had the best seat in the world to watch a lot of incredible cricketing moments. from, For example, from Yuvraj Singh's six sixes in Durban to MS Dhoni's World Cup winning six at the Vankhe Day. So how does it feel to be a part of the game where practically history was scripted? Uh, look, it's a fascinating journey that we've been on right from when I started my umpiring career in sort of 91, 92 to even today where I still do some local umpiring for the Highlands Cricket Association. It's uh, one of those things that, um, you know, I always say that the, I owe nothing to the game and the game owes me everything. So I'm very fortunate that there's a career path uh, for match officials today, umpires and referees. And uh, yeah, it's been a great journey so far. But I'll have to tell you this. So you have this firm but uh, friendly face on the cricket field. And probably when Yuvraj Singh hit the 6 sixes was the first time that I ever saw you smile. Because the TV footage doesn't show a lot of footage about the umpires as such. So when Yuvraj hit the 6-6 and uh, your arms went up in the air and what was the emotion like? Because you had to practically raise your arms for all six balls and it's something that doesn't come along very often in your cricketing lifetime. No, probably the first thing is very tired. <laughs> it's a very, very busy game. <laughs> very busy game, a high scoring game, I think, from memory. And, and to be part of history is obviously very... Uh, very much an honour, but uh, you just umpire the ball in front of you and, and you see what happens and you you take the next one on its merits just like the batsmen and the bowlers do. But um, look, mixed emotions like most games, you know, there's always a winner, there's always a loser. And uh, while I probably felt somewhat uh, appreciation for Yuvraj's uh, feet and, uh, and skill, I also felt a little bit of compassion and sorrow for Stuart Broad through that experience and as a, as a former bowler uh, I could certainly empathise with what he went through and how challenging and difficult it is and particularly in Durban which is very much a, an Indian supporter base it's almost like a right. home game for, for Yuvraj and the team and um, England were up against it But uh, talking about Yuvraj 6 sixes, the TV footage showed that there were some words exchanged between Yuvraj and Flintoff during the, the over break so you were one of the umpires, one of the two umpires that uh, practically separated them because they were having a go at each other. So, do you remember what it, what it was that Printoff said that charged up Yuvraj so much? Uh, first of all, I'd, I'd like to say that whatever is said on the field tries to stay on the field. Uh, I try not to necessarily divulge too much of that information, but on this particular occasion, uh, you know, the, the ground is so noisy and the atmosphere is so noisy that you don't always hear what's, what's said. But... Um, no, I don't, uh, I don't recall hearing what they said at the time, but, you know, in noisy environments, you would learn to trust your eyes and always be on the lookout for things and try to nip things in the bud and make sure that they don't get out of control. 
Um, but I can't divulge what they said on that on this particular occasion. No. Because it's it's a hot topic in India. Because uh, right after that six six, everybody in India was talking about what would this guy have said to you, Raj? That got him pissed off so much. It's 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 been a hot topic ever since. Sure, but AJ, like most things on the cricket field, I tend to focus on my game and, and try to focus on what I have to do and make sure that I'm not the centre of attention with my partner. And, uh, you know, that being said, um, even sometimes when I, I do hear some things, normally I'm trying to focus on my game and trying to keep my nose clean and make sure that um, I don't do anything wrong and uh, tend not to worry too much about what the players are doing. But uh, rooting the game is important. But uh, right. divulging what players are saying to each other is not one of the things that I'd like to do and tell tales out of school. <laughs> All right, no problem. So uh, your journey with cricket started not as an umpire, but as a player first. So can you tell us a story about how that transition happened? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think it's fair to say that I started playing cricket uh, at a later age than most kids would start. I started about the age of 12 when I started high school. Mm-hmm. And I joined a, a brother's cricket club uh, in the lower area of the North Shore in Sydney and and developed a passion for the game because I had some really good uh, junior coaches to start with. You know, Brian Ophel was my local coach with the club and John Doran was my coach with the school. And, and really my love for cricket um, developed through senior school. And uh, I was lucky enough to finish my senior school being captain of our first 11 and we had a, a pretty good team and that was great. And then I played some junior cricket with the North Sydney cricket team, which was captain coached uh, first grade by Trevor Chapel, And uh, it was a really good, uh, really good uh, grade cricket club side in Sydney. And really, I, I, I played as much as I could. I played a lot of uh, lower representative cricket uh, with combined Catholic colleges, with North Sydney, with Northern Suburbs. And, and as a young cricketer, I tried to play as much as I could. Um, and being a, an all-rounder and a bowler, as, as most young kids start out to be um you know had a had a back injury and um you know i suppose had to curtail my representative career and also my my social career as well and as a result uh, one of my mates uh, who was also feeling the same way he was a left arm fast bowler from the other end and uh like most left arm fast bowlers they they tend to get pretty tired pretty quickly and he thought well this uh, bowling gig's a bit too hard why don't we why don't we um i'm going to become an umpire and I remember saying to Dave, um, I'm not sure that's particularly what I'm looking to do. He said, oh, come on, it'll be fun, you know, Let, let's, do, let's do this. This bowling this bowling's for, um, for other people, not us. And we both went along to the course and we, we sat the four nights. We did the 10 hours with the New South Wales cricket umpires. And I remember sitting in the classes with the likes of Dick French, uh, Alan Marshall, Arthur Watson, some really um, very knowledgeable umpires. And uh, at the end of the course, we did our 60 multiple choice questions. It was an 85% pass mark. And unfortunately, David didn't get 85%. And uh, I managed to go past that a little bit. So I ended up uh, being offered an opportunity to be part of the New South Wales Cricket Umpires. And I thought as a young university student at the time, $60 for a few hours uh, of umpiring on a Saturday afternoon wasn't a bad way to try to supplement my non-existent right, done by right. university and and here we are all these years later after after that um after that fateful course but uh, do you remember your first game as an international umpire i do i do it was at the scg it was january 13 1999 uh, one of the first things i recall apart from being incredibly nervous and anxious about the game was i walked out onto the scg with a gentleman by the name of terry prue terry prue mm-hmm. was on the national panel for cricket australia 
And on the SCG giant replay scoreboard, it said Terry Prue in brackets 35, Simon Taufel in brackets one. And uh, it sort of highlighted the gap of experience between myself and Terry at the time. And uh, apart from that, the only thing I can remember from the game was my first decision when I, I luckily and correctly gave out uh, Sanath Jayasuriya caught behind off the bowling of Brendan Julian. And really everything else from that game is a bit of a blur. Uh, up until I was sitting in a hotel room one day during an IPL season and I happened to be flicking through the, the cricket channels as you do and I came across mm-hmm. a replay of this game and I thought, that game looks familiar and it was actually my <laughs> first game. And I didn't realise at the time uh, who the Australian captain was of that side. I'd forgotten and it was a very obscure I think captain. it was Steve Waugh, if I'm not wrong. You was are, you're correct. Waugh? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. So who else, if it wasn't Steve Waugh, who else do you think it might have been? Captain of Australia, one day side, 1999. Uh, I think Ricky Ponting became the captain in the year 2001, uh, if I'm not yeah. wrong. Well, he came He came after Steve Waugh, but on this particular occasion, Steve was injured and Shane Waugh oh. was the captain of Australia. Oh. So isn't it amazing that, you know, for my first game, I couldn't remember who the captain of Australia was. <laughs> that's okay, that's all right. It's been, what, uh, 21 years now? It's yeah, long, but it's, it's, it's funny what you remember. So, you know, for me, as I was saying before, I tend to focus on my game and what I have to do and make sure that I'm doing the right things. And sometimes um, those other details uh, don't necessarily stick in the memory banks. Right, right. And uh, when you started your international career as an umpire, uh, who were the umpires that you looked up to and uh, who were the ones who really took you under their wing and mentored you or trained you? Uh, look, I... I was so lucky. I mean, you used the word luck at the start of this session. I was so lucky to be growing up uh, around the New South Wales system. We had so many good umpires around us. Uh, Former test umpires, Tom Brooks, uh, Ted Wikes, uh, were were two that really stood out early days for me, just being off the field and having discussions with them. Uh, I mentioned Dick French. I mentioned Alan Marshall, Arthur Watson. You know, and then we had some international umpires in their ranks by the name of Daryl Hare, Ian Thomas, uh, who were from New South Wales. Uh, and then I, as I started to network amongst the international scene, being third umpires for visiting um, match officials who came for the test matches in one day, as we had people like David Shepherd, Peter Willey, uh, really stood out for me. you know. And, and then I was able to have really good conversations and matches with match referees, former players, Ranjan Matagali, Clive Lloyd, uh, Raman Subaro, Mike Proctor, um, Gundapa Vishwanath, Cammy Smith, you know, people that knew the game inside out were able to read and, and have a good feel for the game and, and to be able to start to develop those soft skills and be able to effectively manage a game of cricket. And, you know, the players were probably more nervous than myself as they had to go through what they had to do. And the last thing that they wanted to see was perhaps a nervous umpire standing up at one end as well. So um, having the ability to really have deep conversations about what it takes to be a good match official, to be able to build confidence, self-belief, to be able to understand what the game expected and how to deliver that uh, were valuable lessons with so many good people around me. Right, right. So the next question that I have is, uh, it comes from your journey as an umpire until now. So you started in 1999 and uh, how has umpiring changed over the years from 1999 to 2020? 
how has the entire thing changed uh, over the years with uh, more technology being added to the decision making process the likes of drs and uh, reviews and what not yeah look i'd say in general most of the things that happen inside the boundary are reasonably the same you know there's been some shifts as to what you can send off the field in terms of referrals or reviews but most of the things on the inside the boundary have remained the same and it's really important for me that the integrity of the contest is just that it is still is a contest and it still is right. something that uh, that tests you physically and mentally um, and that you know you do need to have three really good teams to have a good a good spectacle and a good product and a, and a good game most of the changes of significant changes have happened outside of the boundary as you say the technology levels have changed and certainly developed um, you, you've got more uh, scrutiny with hotspot snicko ball tracking you've also got stuck audio and those sorts of things that are coming to the fore all the time what you need to make sure that you you keep pace with those processes that keep updating and and keep um you know um, uh, forcing you to process your decisions differently um the level of feedback that you get and the instant feedback that you get is something that you're constantly having to adjust with um adaptability as a match official as a player is something that you either um grab with both hands or will ultimately force you out of the game you know these days we've moved with red ball white ball we're now into pink ball Uh, i've officiated with an orange ball i've officiated with yellow ball as well um oh uh, where are orange balls and yellow balls used for well we we trial them in domestic uh, limited overs cricket and also uh first class day night cricket um, so I've had oh. a yellow ball, for example, in Perth in Sheffield Shield cricket, um, which was uh, obviously something that, you know, this is this has been going on for some time. You know, day night day night uh, test cricket or day night first cricket just doesn't come out of the blue. There is a there is a process and evolutionary um, right. way of getting to this this end point, and it will it will still continue to develop. You know, look in five years time. Maybe people will come up with a slightly different colour that might actually be more in line with allowing the ball to wear and tear naturally and not have to dye it so much. But there may be something different, and and I think that's that's where every sport, um, every industry always has to keep an open mind to what can be done better, but not to right. simply change for the sake of change and not just think that oh if we change it all of our problems are going to go away and, and most of our solutions tend to be more holistic than just one particular change like the color of the ball um, but back to your original question about how the game has changed and and for me as a cricket umpire particularly around how you handle that instant feedback now and actually how you have to put your arms across your chest and, and change your decision at the time in front of millions of people and then somehow regather your thoughts and focus on the next ball and get the next decision right is um is something that's really unique and different and um <laughs> that's why you get paid the big money i suppose that's that's true but i'm a purist at heart when it comes to cricket and uh, i sort of feel though the drs is extremely good but i think there's a certain level of limitation that needs to be put in for example the icc has just come out with a new rule which uh, relieves the on-field umpire for looking for the front foot no ball and uh, it's going to be debuted in the women's t20 world cup that's scheduled to happen soon 
for, for me from a personal point of view i feel that uh, when you take away a lot of things from the game that used to make that used to be something that cricket represented it's slightly moving towards an era where okay you take one function out of the umpire's kitty tomorrow it's going to be another and eventually there's going to be a day when uh, an umpire is going to be standing on the field just to prevent any player conflicts so what is your take on it because uh, from a fan's perspective and a purist perspective i still feel that the umpire needs to have more control of the i, I mean the on field umpire needs to have more control of the decision making process Yeah, look, there's no right answer here. Uh, our game is perfectly imperfect. Our game is an art. It's not a science. We need to be very careful about trying to turn it into a science and trying to get everything 100% right because I'm not sure that's a, an expectation or a, an outcome that's necessarily achievable. Our game is built around variables. Uh, we play with a cricket ball that's not perfectly round. We have two umpires right. on the field. that have differing standards and judgment calls about LBW's caught behinds leg buys you name it no balls are part right. of that unfair deliveries illegal deliveries are part of that the pitch varies from the first morning to the last afternoon our game right. essentially is built around variables and we also operate with an expectation that umpires somehow start their careers being perfect and then are able to get better uh, we are human and for a test match to get a result we need 20 batsmen to make mistakes from one team and to be um dismissed our game is built around mistakes and umpiring intrinsically is also built around mistakes and that's not to say that we should accept or settle for mistakes however when we when we start to think that technology will solve all of our decision making problems and we're replacing decision making with technology we also know the technology is not infallible cameras uh, break down uh, i'm sure the listeners out there who have a mobile phone i'm sure everyone's got a mobile phone if there's one person out there that's never had a problem with their mobile phone and having to reboot it or restart it or reset it <laughs> then uh, please put your hand up and let me know but every form of technology has a problem from time to time and what we then have to rely upon is the human skill and i've always been on record by saying that i think technology is great and technology should be there to support decision but decision making but not replace it now um i'm not across the detail of what the icc is going to put into place and how their system works uh, in the umpires box just yet but i'd be very mindful around the what ifs and what happens when some of that information doesn't get through or doesn't happen in a timely manner you know where do we where do we sit then and once we've uh, are comfortable with this change that the front foot no ball is no longer the purview of the on-field umpire what happens when an on-field umpire gets a waist high full toss wrong or they get an offside wide wrong or they get a right. high wide wrong you know do we then go back to getting technology to take care of all those decisions too and we just want to be really careful about where do we draw the line around right umpires making decisions on the field to play and having this game of variables and having this game that is an art it's not a science and trying to balance that with getting as many decisions right as possible and keeping the match officials out of the game as much as possible and making sure the integrity of the result is also important that the right team does win 
And therein lies the challenge of how we use technology to, to, to balance all of those masters, all of those objectives. Um, and there will be varying views about that. You know, the younger generation will say, well, if the ball is clipping the stumps, it's out. And there will be the older generation who say, but surely the benefit of doubt should go to the batsman and that's not batsman a good cricket. Right. And that's not a good cricket decision. Um, similarly, like we're seeing in today's cricket, that the younger generation think that running out the non-striker at the bowler's end is okay, that that's a run out and that's a form of unfair play and they should be run out. And the older generation is saying, well, that's not the way we want to play cricket. That's not really a good way of getting someone out. So as, as the generations shift and the generations change and the views change, uh, the expectations of the game will also change and the administrators have that challenge of trying to formulate the game to fit in with the expectations of the overall public. And there'll always be dissenters. There will always be people that have a different view. And I think that's what makes our, our game so great. That's absolutely true. You, you put it really well. So uh, umpiring is, as you said, you cover all aspects of the game. It's a 360 degree job or like how the Indian selectors would like to call it these days. It's a three-dimensional job. It's currently a hot word in India today. So how do umpires undergo training to be really good at the job? And what advice would you give to someone who is aspiring to be a great umpire? I'd, I'd probably, number one, keep it simple. Uh, cricket's an incredibly simple game that we do very well to overcomplicate. And we tend to worry about a lot of things that are not going to necessarily happen. And right. so we, we tend to get over anxious and nervous about things that will never happen. Uh, so I see a lot of umpires out there that, that um, overcomplicate the game. And, and my first advice would be keep it simple. My second piece of advice would be be yourself. Don't try to be someone else. I see a lot of umpires out there who try to be another type of umpire or try to be something that they're not. Authenticity and being genuine is so important in today's world. And while um, mimicking other people or copying other people might be uh, flattering, uh, it's not right. being yourself. And when you're trying to be someone else, uh, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of pressure uh, that you put on yourself. Um, so be yourself. Uh, number three, work hard and try to try to practice like you would umpire. And in the game of cricket, it's a very unique experience where there aren't a lot of practice environments and, and processes and strategies where you can actually practice like you umpire. But if you can try to practice under some pressure and create some scenarios and some role plays to be able to handle the environment better and, uh, and make mistakes, as many mistakes as you can off the field, uh, that's a good thing. Because that's how you learn from... Yes. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, um, uh, officiating a number of test matches or one day internationals doesn't mean that necessarily... I get it all right. It just means that I've made mis more mistakes than other people. And we don't have the time to make all the mistakes ourselves. From, so learning from other people's mistakes is really important to increase that, that growth cycle and, and get to where you want to be quicker. But we're all a work in progress. None of us have reached a finish line. And we will continue to learn and make mistakes as we go. Um, the best in the world make the fewest amounts of mistakes. And the best in the world... When they do make a mistake, they tend to be smaller ones, not bigger ones. And, right. Yeah, and they learn from others and they look for new information all the time. So that's part of our growth, our growth mindset, our growth attitude. Uh, I'd like to touch on patience. I see a lot of umpires who want to get to test level within a, a year or two. 
Uh, that's not possible. Right. I, in my book, I talk about the apprenticeship. It's very important to do an apprenticeship. It's very important to make lots of mistakes as you come through the pathway and make sure that you're not making those fundamental mistakes at the top level. And you could be a really good umpire, but if the opportunity doesn't present itself, uh, then you just have to wait. You have to wait and you have to wait your turn um, and you have to wait for that opportunity to present it. But you've got to be ready once the opportunity does present itself. So patience doesn't mean doing nothing. Patience means working hard at your game and being ready for when that opportunity comes. Preparing at every step and trying to yep. uh, be ready when the opportunity comes in. Because like you've said in the book, mm. you never know when the opportunity is going to come in to you. So you just got to be ready for whenever it Correct. comes Correct. Yeah, exactly right, AJ. And that's where that bit of luck comes in. You need to be in the right place at the right time. And everyone needs a bit of luck uh, in their journey, in their right. career path. And uh, I suppose then as a selector, what I'm looking for in good umpires is I'm looking for competencies, capabilities, character and chemistry. I'm looking for the four C's. Competencies, competencies and capabilities are all about uh, technique and knowledge, laws, playing conditions, policies, um, to be able to be fit, to be able to be healthy, to be able to be agile, flexible, to be able to make sure that you have the techniques of movement, positioning, etc to put yourself in the best position to make the best decision um, but for me the out of the four c's the two that are really important are character and chemistry the character is about who you are the character is about your values the character is about what sort of person are you and have you got that ability to do the right thing when other people aren't watching or to deliver what the game expects without necessarily being paid for it or to have your values compromised um, by other people. Uh, chemistry is about teamwork. It's about that ability to work in a team environment. It's a, about that talent of bringing things to the table and adding value to the team and being able to compromise and fit in with the team and put team success as number one. Because umpiring is not an individual sport. Umpiring is a team sport. And we have a broader team that we've got to promote and we've got to be successful with. And that's why for me, apart from competencies and capabilities, the fundamentals that get you to a certain level, that might get you the job interview, that might get you into the door to have a talk to a prospective employer. It's the character and the chemistry that really determines for me which people go forward and which ones stay where they are. And how much people uh, sustain in that environment for longer periods of time. Yeah, yeah, very. it's a very good point that around sustainable success. You know, we can all sort of hit a target by... Um, maybe taking a shortcut or pretending that uh, we put in the work or maybe cheating or cutting a few corners, we can hit a target, but it's not sustainable. And what's really important in today's world is that uh, those values around who you are and how you do it is just as important for sustainable success. Absolutely. And let's talk about uh, the function of an umpire as a manager of conflicts. So on field, there's bound to be a lot of instances where there are conflicts, there are disagreements, and uh, there might be altercations. And uh, one such instance that you've talked about in your book is about an India versus Pakistan game in Peshawar. So can you tell our audiences more about it? Sure. Well, look, conflict is something that uh, is, is, is probably inevitable in, in cricket. And so I would say that uh, conflict is inevitable, but certainly fighting is optional. And one of the skills that you need to have 
around being a good match official is the ability to manage the person and manage the issue. So in the book, I talk about how do we do that? How do we manage conflict? How do we manage the person? How do we manage the issue? Because what tends to happen is that we get emotionally hijacked when something happens on a cricket field and we have a disagreement. We get very emotional about that and people start to shout. And once someone starts to shout, what do you think the other person starts to do? Well, they start to shout back. And um, I talk about mirror behaviouring. And what's really important from an umpire's perspective is that you've got to be the coolest and the calmest person in the room. And when you want other people to calm down, you have to start mirror behaviouring. And by that, I mean that you've actually got to be calm. If you want the other person to be calm, you need to be calm. If you want them to have open and relaxed body language, then you have to have open and relaxed body language. If you start to shout and get emotionally hijacked, then the other person will naturally already be in that space too. Right. Um, so there are some techniques that I do offer, things that have worked. Um, some of them have worked for me. Some of them might work for you. Uh, there are things that I talk about that haven't worked that I've learnt uh, along that journey. But whether it's being a parent, whether it's being a manager, whether it's being a captain, whether it's being an umpire, a lot of the techniques are very transferable and very similar. And right. uh, that game in Peshawar when we had uh, Inzamam given out, run out, or given out obstructing the field, I should say, he yeah. clearly wasn't happy. He was committed. Uh, clearly uh, emotionally engaged and involved in in the decision and it was all about getting the decision to go his way rather than actually understanding why uh, he had transgressed and was given out obstructing the field and then post game it was the challenge of having himself uh, and Bob Woolmer come into the umpire's room and demand an explanation and disagree with how the law was applied and being able to get them to calmly and rationally um, relax to start with and listen and, and whenever you have conflict, invariably listening goes out the door. Uh, people don't listen. They just want to get their point of view across. So effective listening is one of the important skills to be able to manage conflict better and more effectively. Okay. And if I wanted Bob and Inzi to listen to what we had to say, then I needed to listen to what they had to say and understand that they were unhappy and find out why they're unhappy. And then hopefully... Communication that- is vital. Well, communication is all about understanding. And if we don't understand each other, then we don't have any communication. Um, and that's when we sort of get back to those fundamentals, those basics around. If we've got calm, rational discussion, if we've got effective listening, if we've got some empathy, if we've got some respect during that process, if we've got some mirror behaviouring, then we're more likely to be able to manage the issue and if we use good language about we and us, then we're more likely to manage the person and empathise and sympathise with where they're coming from. And sometimes that just might mean at the end of the day we still have to agree to disagree. However, we give ourselves a better chance of being successful to manage the conflict if we can do those things. You can't make everybody happy. And, and you shouldn't try to. Because at the end of the day, as I've experienced through a lot of my career, you can always tell a winning captain's report from a losing captain's report. One team is always happy and the other team is sad because of the result. Um, very rarely do you get that balance of rational thought somewhere in between. And talking about mirroring the player's behaviour, 
you also mentioned about putting the pressure back on the player in certain instances so one such funny thing that uh, i read from your book that i would love to tell the listeners is there's a match referee up there just ready to lighten your wallet how about you help us by keeping quiet for the rest of the day that's i mean that's that's one way to tell a bowler to really calm down and go about doing your business yeah look it's a technique that i'm a big believer in cross pollination and i've learned this technique from rugby union funny enough and throughout my career i spent a lot of time networking with other sports and rugby union was just one of those sports and being able to tap into the skills and abilities and techniques of world-class rugby union referees and listening to what they said and the way they said it i thought well how can i apply some of those techniques and skills to the game of cricket and what you just read out is an example of that where it's not about me it's about managing the issue okay so what's the issue the issue is the behavior is getting to the point where it's becoming unacceptable but how do i manage the player in a way that is not confrontational and what i would say pouring fuel on the fire in other words how can i present it in a way that it's not about you and me it's about us and so that language is about us and it's about improving the behavior and connecting with them on a way that they might understand so when i say hey listen i think we've got a problem there's someone upstairs that would just love to take some money off you i don't want to see (laughs) that happen do you want to keep all that money in your wallet and if the answer is yes and of course it's always yes then i need you to shift behavior i need you to keep quiet and i need you to make sure that you don't overstep that mark but have you experienced a case where uh, you said something like this and the bowler could not help but laugh at what he's just hearing there has something like that ever happened oh absolutely i mean i can give you an example with uh, paul rifle as a as a cricket captain with victoria I was umpiring a Sheffield Shield match, a final, in fact, it was, with Paul Rifle as captain of Victoria playing, who's now an elite panel umpire. And my management style with Paul was to sort of put the pressure back on the player and say, Paul, you're very close on the front foot. If you don't come back, you know, I'm going to be starting to call no balls here. And Paul's response was, well, if I'm effing over the line, then effing call me, otherwise effing leave me alone. And so... (laughs) His approach was, I'm not interested. You know, don't talk to me. I don't want to go down this pathway of having a discussion with you. Just do what you've got to do. And it's very interesting that players will respond differently. And that's why the game of managing people and managing conflict is so challenging and so different because people are so challenging and different. And right. getting to know the personality style of the person that you're dealing with and then having almost a library of options to be able to you know try to choose which option will give you the best chance of getting your message across and and changing the behavior and fixing the problem or managing the problem is 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 an art and a skill in itself absolutely and since we spoke about uh, putting the pressure back on the player you have something in common with virendra sevag about this do you know what that is no tell me vir is vir is quite an interesting character but he's a very funny man but tell me what it is So both of you have this habit of singing a song during high pressure situations. So he sings a song when he's batting and uh, he's talked about this in numerous interviews that whenever he, he's facing a pressure situation and he just starts humming a tune and that sort of diverts his mind from everything so that he can just mm. get rid of all those negative thoughts and I think mm. you would do the same because you've talked about it in the book. Yeah. 
is batting in peak form. Oh, look, for me, the, the most dangerous environment was the practice nets. You know, if you oh. put, uh, if you go to an IPL practice session and you've got people like David Warner, Chris Gale, Verenda Sawag in the nets uh, practicing side by side, uh, you, you definitely are in trouble. Uh, no question about it, because they will try to smash everything and they will try to hit the ball as hard as they can hit it. And the cricket bats today, and given how powerful they are, you know, you've only got to look at the number of sixes scored in every IPL to see every season it keeps going up and up and up. And, and most of the fielders don't um, don't even participate in the game. Um, on the field of play, slightly different, but the problem for us is the deflections. Either deflections off the bowler's hand coming back towards you or deflections off the stumps. Um, you know, most of the time you're able to see and have enough time to react. But uh, let me tell you, these these athletes, these cricketers are getting stronger. The bats are becoming incredibly powerful. And, you know, the confidence level of the batsman is growing all the time where they believe that they can hit the ball for six almost every single delivery and so they're prepared to try. Uh, you've just got to be on your wits all the time and make sure that you're watching uh, and that your agility is such that you're almost ready for anything. But it, it's a very dangerous environment. I'm not surprised to see umpires, some umpires these days wearing helmets. Uh, I know that uh, there are home board countries like England that are, keep researching into um, chest plates and vests for umpires as well. Um, so it is becoming quite dangerous and um, it's only a matter of time perhaps before you get hit. I certainly hope that never happens because... It's going to be a sad day. Me too. Yeah. And because you have the best view of the batsman, or for that matter, the bowler, have you ever watched a player bat or a bowler bowl a, a spell so beautifully that you felt, Jesus, some incredible stuff that I'm watching? And do you have that fanboy moment when you <laughs> see something like that? I certainly try not to. Um, look, it happened a few times in my career, but my natural default response was to try to focus on my game and what I had to do and to make sure that you know, I, I didn't get emotionally involved or engaged with the contest that was in front of me, but very rarely I was able to stand back and maybe just think about what was going on around me and appreciate uh, the quality of the cricket or the people that were involved. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, um, look, I was doing an IPL game several years ago with the Mumbai Indians and I saw Ricky Ponting coming out to bat with Sachin Tendulkar. And you, you're standing out there waiting for those two batsmen to come to the crease and you think, well, this is pretty special as the crowd rises to its feet, the home ground, Wanketi Stadium, and you see two of those uh, quality batsmen coming out to, to open the batting. Uh, I've been very fortunate enough to, to see some really good bowlers um, hand their cap at my end and not just officiate the ball, but also officiate them and their style and their abilities and, and see some great performances. But, you know, people like Shane Warne, uh, Mural Litherin, Shoab Akhtar, uh, Wazim Akram, um, you know, just tremendous bowlers or, you know, you, some real characters in the game, uh, even a, an Irfan Patan or a Zahir Khan, uh, are very, are very good to work with and very, um, they're just great people to be able to have a partnership with because when you work with a bowler, it is like a working partnership. And I don't mean that you're going to give them decisions. I mean that you have a working relationship with them around where they're bowling from, how they're bowling, keeping off the pitch. Uh, managing the, the no balls, the unfair deliveries, and also the appeals. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, very, we're very much aware of m making sure that we treat the players with respect. 
that we don't show right. any favoritism or bias. And once you start to become emotionally engaged in that sort of that fanboy moment that you described, you are walking a very dangerous line and potentially allowing some of that subconscious admiration to impact on what you do next. And it's and for me, the easiest way was to disassociate myself from that and to just look at a set of pads or look at a set of feet or look at a ball or look at a bat and just umpire what's in front of you. You got to be neutral all the time, no matter how big of a fanboy you are. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we have a few questions from the fans of this show. And uh, so I'm going to put those questions to you. So the first question is from DJ from the Edges and Sledges Cricket Podcast. And he says, what is the best sledge that you have overheard while umpiring in an international game? The one that I could repeat is not clean enough to be able to share on this podcast. Uh, so you can talk about something that is more vegetarian in context. <laughs> uh, sure. Look, I'll probably give you a, an anecdote then from a Sheffield Shield match, a first class game between New South Wales and South Australia. Um, the players are international, even though the game wasn't. We had Jason Gillespie bowling uh, from one end from South Australia and Steve Waugh batting at the other end for New South Wales. And on this particular day, uh, Jason was bowling very well and Steve was batting very poorly. And uh, Steve Waugh was outside edging to third man, inside edging past the stumps to fine leg and really struggling to get the ball in the middle of the bat. And uh, you guys have got a big company over there in India by the name of MRF. And MRF yeah. was sponsoring Steve Waugh at this stage. And Steve had a very um, good bat from MRF. But unfortunately, he wasn't using any of the middle of it. He was only using the outside and inside edges. So um, Jason basically then stood mid-pitch after an inside edge down to fine leg for four runs between the stumps and himself and uh, uh, said something to Steve. Um, Steve then basically replied. He said, hey, Jace, you see this cricket bat, mate? It's worth more than your house. So why don't you just get back <laughs> and keep bowling? And I'll keep using as much of it as I want. And I just thought that was a pretty good sledge back to, back to, back to the bowl. <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty good sledge, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the second question is from Srinath Bharadwaj, who asks, with all the media hullabaloo, DJ music all around, and the varying degree of competition, is umpiring during IPL different from a T20 international? If yes, why? Uh, on the field, I'd say no. Uh, look, there's some playing condition differences there around strategic timeouts, etc. But on the field, basically, no. There's certainly always uh, the strength of contest and that um, that high level of scrutiny. But off the field, I'd say yes. Because um, with IPL, uh, one of the great things that you get with IPL is the, is the Bollywood factor. And um, perhaps the fan factor is a little bit more intense and a little bit more parochial. And, and very noisy as well. Yeah, and probably uh, around the hotel, around getting into the ground, around getting out of the ground is something that's a little bit more busy, a little bit more congested, a little bit more fanatical and over the top and distracting. So from a more of an event perspective, I think IPL is probably a little bit more intense and a bit more, um, yeah, over the top. The final question is from Prabhudo Chakraborty, who asks, which was your most difficult match to stand up as an umpire? It's hard to single out one. What I would say is... Would it be the Trent Bridge one? Uh Oh, yeah, look, they're, they're difficult for different reasons. And that's what I was about to explain. Uh, so a lot of my first games were difficult. So first one day, a first test match, first T20. And even my first T20 international was difficult because I never umpired a T20 match before that. So, you know, there wasn't a domestic T20 that we actually officiated before doing my first, first T20 international in, in South Africa. 
Um, so a lot of the firsts are difficult because you haven't been there before and you don't know what to expect. So they're difficult for that reason. Um, the Trent Bridge game was difficult because it was my worst test match and was the game that I made the most amount of mistakes and it was the game that I had most difficulty in getting through and understanding why I was doing what I was doing. So that was difficult from that perspective and you couldn't run away. Like there's four or five days of having to back up all the time uh, after you'd had a previous bad day. So that was difficult from that perspective. Um, the semi-final of the 2011 Cricket World Cup between India and Pakistan was probably one of the more difficult ones, but from the off-field perspective, you know, it was the two prime ministers at the game. It was the uh, the airport being chock-a-block through everyone that wanted to be there. It was the hotel being an absolute um, circus around being busy and having people in the hotel that weren't staying there and just looking to be part of the action. Uh, the, the ability to get from the hotel to the ground, um, given the congestion. A lot of the off-field distractions were particularly difficult for that game and, and the amount of scrutiny and focus on that game were very challenging. But look, overall, umpiring in Sri Lanka is probably the, the toughest environment to officiate in because it's got everything in the one place. It's got the heat, it's got the humidity, it's got the spin, it's got the swing, it's got the pace, it's got the food, it's got the temperature, uh, it's got the noisy crowd and the music. And when you put all those things together, uh, you know, it does become a very difficult and challenging environment. So it's hard to narrow it down to one particular game because they're all different for varying, difficult for varying reasons. Awesome. So before we pull the curtains on the show, uh, let me say this. I read your book and quite frankly, it is an incredible one. And personally, I learned so much from this book. And there were times when I was reading that I reflected back on my past and I thought, you know, maybe I wish... I came across this book much before and it would have helped me become a better person. Mm. And honestly, Steve Wall articulated it so well by saying that this book is a roadmap for all of us to help unlock our full potential and make the most out of our talent. From a personal perspective, I would like to thank you for writing this book and uh, because it's helped me and I'm sure that it's going to help millions of people out there. And I strongly recommend this book to everyone and uh, for all those listeners, the links to the sites where the book is available is given in the show notes. Uh, it's available across the world. Uh, Simon, can you talk more about the availability of the book? Sure. Well, thank you very much for those kind words, firstly. Um, I, I'm a big believer in sharing, and I, I must say that I'm not necessarily trying to sell books. I'm trying to pass on the messages and try to pass on the learnings around um, what we did well and what didn't work and how we might be able to help other people be the best that they can be and, and help reach their potential. And so around those topics around preparation, teamwork, culture, handling pressure, managing conflict, bouncing back from setbacks, um, a lot of the techniques and lessons are very much transferable. So I think there's something in there for everyone. So I would really genuinely love people to be the best that they can be and, and reach their potential. So um, don't think about the cost, think about the value. And so from the book availability perspective, it's available in India uh, at a lot of bookstores. It's also available and published through Pan Macmillan India and would be available through most of those book sites uh, available in India. But it's also available through um, book depository uh, online. So if you live outside of India and you want to buy a book, um, you can get those printed and delivered in places like uh, Australia, the UK, the US, uh, and it's also available on Amazon uh, as an ebook, a Kindle version. So for those of you that like to be able to 
to read when you travel electronically, that's great. But if you're like me and you like something hard in your hands around being able to flick through the pages and make notes or highlight stuff, um, I suggest uh, visit a bookstore in India. Uh, a lot of the relay bookstores would have them, for example, in airports and those sorts of places. Uh, otherwise, go to bookdepository.com. And I'll be linking all of these sites in the show notes. So listeners, please go through this these links and you can grab your copy. And also, Simon, you're hosting a fundraiser on the 6th of March called Table of Ten. So mm. please tell our listeners about it. Sure. Well, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be the, the chairperson of the Highlands District Cricket Association, which is based on the Southern Highlands of New South Wales. And we've got um, uh, a community fundraising event on the 6th of March at the Mittagong RSL where we have Ian Chappell, Doug Walters, Keith Stackpole and Lauren Cheetle, all Australian players, male and female, uh, coming along to entertain us on the night. And we're raising funds for the development of junior cricket uh, and our female junior competition that we'd like to start and also the Rural Fire Service. But we're also trying to tell people that bushfire-affected areas like the Southern Highlands and the South Coast are open for business and that um, people need to buy from the bush. And one of the best ways that you can help uh, regional areas that have been affected by bushfires is by visiting them, is by um, going to the shops, is by staying overnight, uh, playing golf, going to the wineries, going to places that um, normal tourists would go to, um, and really lifting spirits and lifting the the local economy so that people have a sense of dignity and self-worth um, and making sure that we keep our jobs and we keep our young people uh, fully employed. So that night on the 6th of March is around doing all those sorts of things, raising money for the fireys, raising money for some cricket, supporting local business and also having a great time and being able to listen to some, some of the stories and some of the insights from Chapel, Stackpole, Walters and Cheadle. Amazing. It's a great thing that you, you are doing out there and it's always good to end the show on such a positive note and I've learned a lot from you today and also through your book. From a personal standpoint, once again, thank you so much, Simon, for enlightening me and also for being a part of this and I had an absolute incredible time talking to you. Not a problem. Happy to help and I wish you and your listeners all the best for 2020 and hope it's a great year for everyone. Well, that was Simon Toffel and thank you for listening to The Sensations. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ajay Parthasarthi and I'll see you in the next one.